Hey guys, welcome back to Cup Goals with s &M. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Okay, you're doing better now, right? Yeah. After your surgery. Yeah. Took care of some business and whatnot. All right, shut up. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to, you could, that could be anything. I, I, did, I did a business. <laughs> you did a business. Yeah, I did a business. Do you have a new story? I don't, but I thought we could maybe talk a little. I have a new story. Oh, go to your new story then. What do you got? I have a new story. So the headline says, FBI found bucket of heads, arms, and legs, bodies sewn together at Arizona Body Donation Facility. Hmm. So. Did you snopes this? Because people love to publish stories like this. And this is my coworkers love to share stories that are clearly made up. This is true. It is from Phoenix 19 News and it's from the FBI. It's a FBI official release. Wow. I read this story too. I know it's true, but I like I said my my coworkers they just believe anything that's on there. Gruesome details have been released in a lawsuit against a body donation and tissue bank facility in Phoenix. The FBI raided the Biological Resource Center as part of a human body parts trafficking investigation in 2014. Agents found buckets full of body parts and different people sewn together and hung up on a wall, according to a testimony by one of the agents. Like, is this just unsupervised? Like, how do you get away with all that? This is a horror story. It's just unbelievable. The story is unbelievable, said Troy Harp, who gave the bodies of his mother and grandmother to the facility in 20 and I'm sorry, in 2012 and 2013. So in 2012 and 2013, his mother and grandmother died. So let's take a look at Troy Harp. <laughs> Red Harp, flag there. Harp, one of more than 30 plaintiffs in the lawsuit against BRC donated their bodies with the understanding that they would be used for scientific purposes cancer, leukemia, and whatever else going, using the sample cells is what I was told, but that's not what happened. In 2014, the FBI raided the facility in hazmat suits as part of the multi-state investigation into the illegal trafficking and sales of human body parts. Wow. For the first time, testimony of the FBI agents who conducted the raid has been released to the public. The agent said he found a cooler filled with male genitalia a bucket of head, arms, and legs, infected heads. Infected heads. Were they infected before death? <laughs> I don't know. And infected with what? Small woman's head sewn onto a large male torso like Frankenstein hanging on the wall, which he called a morbid joke. Who in their right mind, Harp said, it's absolutely gross. In the lawsuit... It says bodies were cut up with chainsaws and bandsaws. Tools that were not appropriate for dismembering scientific bodies, Harp said. <laughs> yeah. The lawsuit also says pools of human blood and bodily fluids were found on the floor of the freezer. And bodies had no identification tags. Harp said his mother's ashes showed up in the mail on his doorstep shortly after the raid. But he's not even sure that they were her ashes. Well, yeah, because her head might have been sewn on to somebody else. <laughs> he said his mother and grandmother wanted Jesus. to help medical research after their death. Yet he doesn't believe that their bodies ever even made it out of the BRC building. 
He feels that he never got closure. This is open, and I don't feel like I ever will. All right, so that's that. Did they talk to, like, the director of the facility to get a quote? I have his name here. It's uh, Leatherface. Was in charge of the facility, Mr. Leatherface? Why are you just staring at me? Because it's not funny. That's funny. That is funny. (laughs) Because who else would do that? Well, this was in Arizona. Wasn't Leatherface in Texas? Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> it's still, you can move from state to state, especially once your ship blows up in Texas, you might want to get out of there. I don't know. Maybe relocate, start your trade somewhere else. And kind of start, go corporate. Yeah. Start, start an LLC. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's brilliant, though. Like, that's a good it's brilliant, premise. brilliant, Harry. It's, it's a good premise for a horror movie because that's that's the best way for a sick individual to be able to continue their activities. It's like it's science. But then not have to worry about them, you know, uh, about being raided, well, for a while. <laughs> for, <laughs> for a long years. time and get away with it. I don't I, I like that there is a shocked. male genitalia fridge. Yeah. Like this, this is this is the dick fridge. Yeah, the dick fridge. This is me, the infected head fridge. Grab me a short one. Ew. What? No. <laughs> I need a tall one. Well, they all will be because they're in the boy. fridge. <laughs> like, like, does she know about shrinkage? Like, yeah, uh, it's, it's like uh, it's cold in there. <laughs> well, yeah, that's uh, that's the story out of Arizona. Yeah, when I first read that, I immediately I was like, okay, I got to go look and see if this is real because... I sent it to you. It was me. Well, I know, but that's not why. I just mean there, there's so many stories that are crazy. Like I said, no, that's sometimes real. my coworkers are like, can you believe this happening? And I'm like, no. How often sound, do I send you fake news? This doesn't sound believable at all. Do I send you fake news often? I don't think so. Yeah, never would be how often I, can still I do check that. The, you didn't write the story. You just sent it. Bitch. I, I tag you in Onion articles, so I send you fake news all the time. So. Yeah, that's known fake news. That's <laughs> called satire. <laughs> this could be a satire thing, and I just don't know the website, though. Because there's more than one satire website. Right. Phoenix Logan was news. telling me that uh, there's like a like a Christian satire website called the Babylon Bee. Mm-hmm. And Logan was telling me that for some reason Snopes keeps fact checking them, <laughs> even though it's a satire <laughs> website. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. That's just something Logan told me. I thought that Snopes was funny, that. though. Oh, hey, Crowley. Oh, Russia. Anyway, I, th- I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the Amazon Prime original, The Boys, the based on the Garth Ennis, Derek Robertson comic book. Are there going to be spoilers or not? Nah? I don't think we should do spoilers. Okay. Maybe just some brief thoughts. But for me, the, the adaptation, you know, they, they took a lot of liberties, but they did keep the general tone of it. Uh, a lot of the dark humor uh, was, wasn't there, but there... There were moments of dark humor, though, for sure. Yeah. Like the baby with the laser eyes being used as a weapon and things like that. So some of the dark humor was definitely in there. The dolphin. Um, but the the way Garth Ennis writes, there's a, there's a lot of dark humor in his stuff. Uh, but generally, though, it was it was faithful to the to the tone and, and the characters for the most part, though they did take some liberties. But overall, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Elizabeth Shue was great. I really liked her character. Uh, Carl Urban was great. Um, Simon Pegg was in it, which I didn't know he was going to be in it, so that was cool. Elizabeth Shue sounds just like Rachel Hollis. 
Anyone who knows the two of them, their voices are the same. Hmm. It's weird. But it was cool to see her again. And it ended on quite a cliffhanger. And thankfully, it's been approved for a season two. What did you think of uh, what you watched? Well, I saw the ending coming, which is weird. Because I normally don't see things coming. Yeah. Ever. Like, for example, in Civil War. Did you know that's how it was going to end, though? No, but... Or did you just kind of see that reveal coming? I saw that reveal coming. Yeah. And then it ended, and I was like, I'm sorry, it's over? (laughs) But I saw that coming. Did you enjoy the series, though? Yeah, I enjoyed Crowley. it. Crowley. Really? Every week with this? No. He's like, she's distracted, <laughs> no. so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have sex with her arm. <laughs> yeah, get a blanket over so, his head. Yeah, so I saw that coming, and then... But did you enjoy the series, though, I did. Regardless of the... I did. The, I don't like, like, that, that reveal doesn't really sum up the whole series. I mean, it's a big deal, especially to one of the characters, but it... I feel like there's a lot of other stuff going on in there. There is a lot of other stuff going on in there. And, and I like um, all the characters. Like, I like pretty much everybody. It's one of the job. super heroes. His name is Homelander. Which he's the Superman character. He's Superman. And I can't stop thinking of Homestar Runner every time they mention him. Dude, what, one of my favorite things, they have a character called The, the Deep, who is based on Aquaman. And he just gets shit on for like the whole fucking series. And it's, it's hilarious <laughs> because it so that's funny. exactly how you should treat Aquaman. They yeah. did it exactly right. Uh, they treat all the characters kind of appropriately for yeah. that. Like I like the the black noir character was basically Snake Eyes. Yeah. Uh, you know, then you had your Superman. You had your um, well, uh, you had your, the Flash basically, yeah. which is a train. Uh, the lamplighter was in the comics. That was basically Green, Green That's Lantern. Green Lantern, clearly. But he w- he wasn't there. He retires. You had your Wonder beginning. Woman character. That's the chick. Yeah, Queen Maeve was the yeah. Wonder Woman, yeah. and then uh, well, I forget the the main chick. What was her name? Bright Starlight. Star? Starlight. I don't know what she's supposed to be. I maybe like Starfire. I don't know. I don't know what Starfire kind of is. Starfire is one of the Teen Titans, but I don't really know her skill set though. Starlight literally just glows. I don't know. But she can emit energy. She's bulletproof. She's pretty powerful. Pretty strong. She's apparently bulletproof. Yeah. Who knew? Which worked out really well for her. Right. (laughs) (laughs) A 50 cal. Close range. Yeah, and you see, uh, you meet the female that Sean told us about a couple weeks ago or a week ago. Yeah, they completely redid her. Well, not redid her, but they introduced her in a different way. And just the whole dynamic with the boys was different, too. They were more of a team in the comics, and this one did the typical reluctant team gets together thing. I, I'm so sick of that. Like, I'm so sick of the reluctant pe- people always, they never want to help, ever. And you know they're going to. To me, it's, to me, it's just a way to stall for time, almost. It's yeah. like, you know they're going to help. It's It's a way to make it a series instead of... It's just like they inject... Fake drama in there, basically. Yeah. They left a lot of stuff out, though. Like, the whole time that Billy Butcher dude... Like, in, in the comics, they're pretty much, like, gov- more government-sanctioned, in a way. I mean, they're like a black ops thing. And he's always fucking the director. Like, he's always... Every time he goes in, even though they hate each other, they hate fuck every time he sees her. Uh, they let, they didn't have any of that. 
<laughs> that was weird. <laughs> yeah, so like it was, it was just very, it was good. I mean, it was, it was enjoyable. I liked it. Yeah, I, liked I watched it, it all. It, it was, it was good. It wasn't like amazing. It, it, it didn't suffer from what the net, a lot of the Netflix Marvel series suffer from, which is that decompression, where they feel the need to tell you the backstory of every fucking ancillary fucking character in the series. And it's funny because like they do, but they don't like they tell you, but it's like in passing and they yeah. don't. And they, they not... only show you the important stuff. Right. Or or they make it interesting. And it's it's done well. It's only eight episodes, which is, and which it's, is good. They didn't try to stretch it out. Dennis Quaid's kid is is uh, Huey. Huey. And it's funny because like you feel like you know who that kid is. Like when he comes on screen, you're like, I feel like I've seen him in something. Yeah. But like not well enough that you're like, no, I swear I've seen him in something. But right. you're like, he looks really familiar. And then as soon as as soon as you find out who he is, you're like, that's why I feel like I've seen him in something, because I've seen his dad and his uncle and stuff. Right. <laughs> like, and that's why he looks familiar to me. It does look kind of like Dennis Quaid. Yeah. It's it's like especially from like the nose down. Yeah. He really looks like his dad from the lower half and the face. So, yeah, that's that's what I've got there. <laughs> God, dead bodies taped to walls or whatever. Sewn together. Sewn back, back together. together. Oh, look at us. We're like a band, but not. All so, right. Yeah. So what do you what do you have for us this week? Me? You. <laughs> yes, you. I get to go first. I try to let you go first because I, I, I get passionate about my topic. So I tend to drone on. It's time for murder. <laughs> you excited? No. Well, I am going to be talking about the longest outstanding arrest warrant in Kansas City and one of the longest outstanding felony warrants in the United States. Okay. So her name is Sharon. Okay. Which... When was the last time you saw, heard of a baby named Sharon? That's got to be a name that's dying off. Sharon. Yeah. This is my daughter, off. Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if your friend was like, this is my baby, Sharon. You'd be like. Right. That's weird. So Sharon Kinney was born Sharon Elizabeth Hall on November 30th, 1939 in Independence, Missouri, which is one of the options that you get to start at in Oregon Trail. Oh, and she was born to Eugene and Doris, who cares about that. But when she was in junior high, her parents moved the family to Washington State. But by the time she was 15, they had returned to Missouri. So in the summer of 56, she was 16, and she had met a 22-year-old college student named James Kinney. So the couple started dating, and they dated pretty regularly until James moved. Well, he went back to school at Brigham Young University, BYU. In the fall, which is a Mormon school, if you don't know that. Oh, I did so, not know that. Sharon reportedly was deeply interested in finding a partner with the prospects who of who could take her away from Missouri. Yeah. So she wrote a letter to James saying that she was pregnant by him. So James took a leave from BYU and returned to Independence, where she, he married Sharon on October 18th, 1956. She was 16. But she falsely identified herself as being 18 and a widow. At 18? She was 16. 
Okay. But, she but I'm fall- saying, but she was identifying herself as a widow at yes. 18. Yes. She refused to address the assertion. Um, but she told people at the time that she had been married in Washington and the man died in a car accident. Later, though, she refused to talk about it. So the new couple held a second more formal wedding the next year at Salt Lake City Temple after she fi- she formally formally joined the Jesus Christ Church of Latter-day Saints. So when she finally became like a real Mormon yeah. and was like, give me my special underpants, they were like, you can have your real wedding. So after the wedding, they returned to Provo, Utah, and James resumed a study at BYU. But they ended up having to be put on hold again at the end of the fall semester. So they go back to Independence, Missouri, and they both end up taking jobs. So Sharon babysits. And James works in electrical engineer. You know, like you do when you can't finish college back in the 50s. You just take a job as an engineer. (laughs) Right. Oh, I can't finish college. I was going to say, wait a minute. You're an electrical engineer? Yeah, I I work at Bendix Aviation as an engineer because I can't finish college. That's how it was in the 50s. This is why boomers are the worst generation. Well, actually, technically boomers weren't that generation. It was the generation before them. That was this one, but it was the silent generation. But still, like, oh, my God. So things were very different back then. So at this point, Sharon claims to have miscarried that child that brought along their marriage. But she did become pregnant again. So in the fall of 57, she gives birth to a child named Dana. Sharon reportedly was a lavish spender. And she expected the finer things out of life. You know, that's what happens when you get married at 16. You don't really understand finances. Right. <laughs> well, that and when your husband can be a college dropout and become an engineer. Right. That also also kind of skews your reality. So I'm here to apply for the engineer's position, like experience. I've done a lot of school. I did a school. I did some schooling I, I and did, some things. I did some schooling. And I graduate. I knocked out a 16-year-old when I was 22. You're hired. Design an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) He became became an engineer at an aviation company without going to college. Right. Okay. The 50s were a different time. Yeah. Also, maybe why there were so many plane crashes. (laughs) So. um, Were there a lot of planes? No, I don't know. (laughs) So. So with James' salary, they ended up living in a rented home that was next door to his parents' residence, which is weird. (laughs) Which is fucking weird. Why would you live next door to your parents? People do that shit all the time, though. It's like that Miss Maisel show you're watching. She lives in the same building. She lives downstairs. Right. I would rather be dead. Right. So anyway, James is working the night shift, you know, as his night shift engineering position. (laughs) Whatever. Third shift electrical engineer. Okay. Oh, yeah. At Bendix. And his wife fills her days with shopping. Bendix. Bendix. So shopping. But then later on, she starts making time, you know, for other men. Like you do. So by the time, by the time they have their second child, Troy, Sharon is having an affair with uh, her friend from high school, John Boldis. 
Boldis, whose last name is B-O-L-D-I-Z-S. Hmm. That seems like too many letters. So, Boldis. So, by the early 60s, James is contemplating divorce, partially because of Sharon's spending habits, but partially because, you know, infidelity. So he speaks with his parents about divorce on March 18th, 1960. And he tells them that that Sharon has agreed to give him a divorce if he allows her to keep the house. The only the daughter, only the girl. Oh. And pay her a thousand dollars. Oh. <laughs> so she doesn't want Troy. She wants one of the kids. A thousand dollars doesn't seem like a lot. Even back then, it doesn't seem like that much. Right. But the house seems like a lot. It's not even their house. It's a rental. Oh. So James' parents, who are devout Mormons, urge him to stay in the marriage. So Sharon. <laughs> Again, religion is the problem with so yeah. many things. So Sharon, though, she also wants out. But so she's thinking about ways now, because at this point, James is like, OK, we're going to work it out because, you know, he loves his parents. That's why he lives next door to them. So she's like. She's talking to Boldus, and she offers him a thousand dollars, presumably the thousand dollars that she's trying to get from, from John, or James. I don't know who John is. No, John's the guy she's banging. Anyway, so she's she offers this dude a thousand dollars to kill her husband. Oh, wow. <laughs> Later, she claims she's joking. Yeah. Anyway, on March nineteenth, James lays down for a nap. While he's sleeping. He's shot in the head and dies. Sharon told authorities that their two-year-old daughter, Dana, had accidentally shot James while playing with the gun. <laughs> According to Sharon, her daughter was like, how does this thing work, Daddy? How does it work? And then she heard the gun go off and rushed to find James shot in the head with his daughter standing nearby. So much irresponsibility there. If, if if that were the case, and let's say she's telling the truth, like I assume there's there's got to be a whole litany of questions they have for her about. Oh, it's the fifties or it's sixty at this point. Why why does your daughter have the gun? Police believe Sharon's account. Oh my fuck! So no, there is no question. <laughs> They're like, that is is it fucking Chief Wiggum from The Simpsons? <laughs> They're like, <laughs> all right, Job boys, on. mop it up. <laughs> So police believe Sharon's account. James' family confirmed that he is indeed a gun lover and left the guns lying around where children could reach them. Jesus fucking Christ. Dana is often found to be handling a gun. <laughs> okay, and, so I didn't know all this. This is all And when the police hand her a gun, she played with it and and removed the safety. The It is Chief Wiggum. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, give me that back. It's loaded. <laughs> <laughs> So they believe it's plausible that she could have shot her father. There were no fingerprints on the gun. <laughs> I love because the, 50, the 60s, dude. They're just like, look at this. Kid loves guns. Give her a gun, John. Look, look at her go. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? There are no fingerprints because it's heavily oiled, and the police did not test either Sharon or Dana for fingerprint or for gun gunpowder residue because why would they? Yeah. So James is dead. Case closed. They're what like, the fuck? job well done, boys. Right in the head. Yeah. Kill shot. <laughs> They're like, we've got a regular Annie Oakley here. Right. So James is dead. Sharon collects $29,000 in life insurance money, which 
today's value, that would be like um, 230000 Wow. So in April of 1960, a month after James' death, she already has the money, she upgrades her car at the urging of a salesman named Walter Jones. She took a liking to Jones, so she started having an affair with him. A month later, she's pregnant. Just bitches. Fertile. <laughs> so she demands that Walter marry her now that she's pregnant. But here's the problem. Walter was already married. Hmm. And he did not want to leave his wife for Sharon. But here's the good news. As luck would have it, Walter's wife, Patricia, she went missing. Hmm. So after filing a missing persons report, Walter spoke with Patricia's friends in the hope of, of uncovering some clues as to where his wife might be. And the group, you know, the, her friends, they would carpool to work with her. So they were they were carpooling and they said that she had received a mysterious phone call on the day of her disappearance. And the caller was female and wished to speak with her after work. Patricia agreed, asking the carpool driver to drop her off at this meeting spot in Independence, Missouri. Yeah. Same place. They confirmed that the woman was there waiting for Patricia. Walter confronted Sharon, right? Yeah. Because he was like, hey, you're pregnant with my kid. My wife's missing. This seems convenient, right? Yeah. She admitted that she had indeed met with Patricia that day, and, and she told her about the affair. And afterwards, she claimed she'd then dropped her off near the Jones household. Walter, as you can imagine, was a bit dubious. <laughs> and was like, all right, bitch not. A bit more dubious than Chief Wiggum right. when it comes to murder. Sharon stuck to her story, and she went ahead and enlisted her old high school lover, John Boldis, to search for Patricia. Sure enough, they found Patricia's body. Oh. Patricia's clothes had been torn, making her death look like sexual assault. Hmm. She'd been shot four times. Wow. And at least one of the gunshots was at close range. She was shot once in the stomach, twice in the shoulder, once in the head. So police questioned Sharon... John and Walter. She she threw her kid on the, the altar for that <laughs> one too. Like, it's like, look, she was like, she was in the yard playing with guns. This bitch is <laughs> walking by. You know how my daughters want to do with the guns. <laughs> she was like, have you ever met my son Troy? <laughs> so and subsequently, they arrested Sharon for the murder. What's more, they announced that Sharon would be tried for the murder of her husband, James. <laughs> so Chief Wiggum's gone, and somebody's like, wait a minute. This doesn't add up at all. <laughs> we're like, we're beginning to think Sharon might not be good. So Sharon's pregnant and the trials needed to wait until after she delivered her baby. This was apparently a 60s rule because now nowadays they're just like, we don't care. Yeah. Sharon was tried separately for each murder and the trial for the murder of Patricia Jones began in June of 61. The media arrived to, you know, because media used to have to arrive. Now media is everywhere. Yeah. But media used to have to come to town. <laughs> so media arrived to cover the sensational case. And in the end, due to lack of concrete evidence, jury found her not guilty in Patricia's murder. Hmm. One juror even asked for her autograph after the verdict. That's good. That's a good sign of an impartial jury. Yes. That's nice. Autograph. 
bitch did nothing. She, like, didn't even have a job. She babysat. Well, she murdered somebody and got away with it, so that's pretty, it's pretty amazing. She would, today, nowadays, she would write a, she would write a book that said, if I did it. <laughs> so, the I trial. I always picture that book. Like, it, I, I don't know what the cover looks like, but I always picture it as saying when, but the when is, like, scribbled out. <laughs> That's not what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I picture that book, though. The trial for James Kinney's murder proved to be more complicated. First trial was in January of 62, and it ended in conviction. But the verdict for life behind bars was overturned due to procedural irregularities. Second trial ended abruptly in a mistrial. And then the third trial in 64, 64, so it was two years. Ended in a hung jury, allowing, allowing Sharon to be out on bond. Before her fourth trial could begin in October of 64, she skipped town, shocking, and headed to Mexico with a boyfriend named Francis Puglies. <laughs> he sounds fun. She claimed they intended to get married, but Sharon just couldn't resist another fuck-up. Because Sharon is a fuck-up. <laughs> Big time. After, with like two murders. She just couldn't. So after meeting an American tourist, Francisco, who's not related to Francis, Francisco Paradis Orendez. Francisco, that's fun to say. <laughs> in a bar. She goes back to Francisco's hotel room. She claimed he tried to rape her and she shot him, killing him and wounding a hotel employee who entered the room as he heard gunshots. Return on the ballistics revealed that the gun that killed Francisco was the same gun that killed Patricia Jones. Wow. This bitch loves to kill people with guns. So Mexican police did not believe Sharon's story about the attempted rape. And I gotta tell you, I don't either. Right. So they try her for Hashtag homicide. don't believe women. What? <laughs> no. <laughs> Hashtag don't believe murderers. So... In October of 65, she was convicted and received a 10-year prison sentence. Subse subsequent appeal and judicial review had an actual <laughs> adverse effect on her case. Really? Which is not common. <laughs> <laughs> and extended her sentence to 13 years. Nice. Claiming the first had been too lenient. Sharon then spent the next four years in a Mexican prison, earning the nickname La Pistolera, <laughs> which is the gunfighter. On December 7th, 69, Sharon didn't show up for roll call. By the next morning, it was obvious she had escaped. Some believe she bribed the guards and made her escape during a blackout the night before. Others believe her boyfriend ate an escape. There is a lurid theory that the family of her last victim busted her out of jail because he had been terrible. <laughs> but the FBI working in tandem with Mexican authorities entertained a brief search for her, claiming it was unlikely she would return to the United States and had instead probably made her way to Guatemala. Sharon's warrant for the murder of her husband, James, issued in 64, is still active. Wow. Making it the longest outstanding arrest warrant in Kansas City history and the longest one of the longest outstanding felony warrants in the United States history. Huh. Isn't that bitch crazy? Yeah. 
This is crazy. She's just murdering. Just going around just shooting murdering. people. Just murdering everybody. She's just, just killing like, everybody up in here. She's like, well, it worked so well the first time with like the thinnest story ever. Right. It almost does encourage you to do it again. It's like I got away with this one. I just blamed it on my kid. If she had just stopped there, she could have lived her life. Yeah. But then she she's had to go. She got killing. a taste of blood, man. Yeah. If she had just stopped at, at murdering her husband, she would have been fine. You know? But then she had to murder her dude's wife. And yeah. then, like, why? Just stop there. Everything would have been fine. I mean, don't murder, but hashtag don't <laughs> oh, murder. Oh, that's not an endorsement? Hashtag stop murdering people. But that's, wasn't that interesting? That was interesting. Good that was me. not a horrible... I, I don't know if it's how you tell it. Well, sometimes it's how you tell the story, but other times it's it's just a subject matter. It can't be told in a way that isn't terrible. But that I, one, I do know that you like you like that I smile while I tell my story. <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, that might help. But it, also when you don't focus on, like, grisly details or we don't know what a wonderful person the other guy, the, the victim was, like... Uh, I think the Richard Ramirez one was the one that really bothered me because it was just so random. You know what I mean? Right. You're just minding your business. It's, like, it's different when it's like domestic. It's like that seems to happen a lot. What are you going to do? It's like gang violence. It's just something that happens. But like when it's just some random dude breaks in, you're just breaks hanging your out. wife in front of you. Like, Jesus <laughs> Christ, man. <laughs> right. That's terrible. That's, that there's, no, there's no pleasant spins you can put on that for me. It's like you're just sitting here with your dog. Someone yeah. comes in and rapes your wife. You're like, wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> what just happened? And like, oh, man, that's that's a no fun scenario right there. That is no fun. It's a no fun scenario. No fun. Nobody's having fun. Except maybe Richard Ramirez probably. Having Apparently. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> he was having a good time. Oh, he was like, I'll I'll take two. Hey, so this week I have something different than usual. No, I have. Don't. I do have something different. I am going to tell you an inspirational story. About a young, creative entrepreneur. Yeah. No, you're not. You're going to tell me about Todd McFarlane. <laughs> Is he not those things? Was he not those things? It's all I've heard about for a week. So, Sean does this thing when he's doing a topic. I do deep dives on the research <laughs> so, sometimes. Unless it's Spider-Man. In that case, it's always a deep dive on Spider-Man in this house. So, you can never <laughs> tell when it's going to be a Spider-Man. <laughs> But, There's a little bit of Spider-Man in here. So. Yeah, there was a Spider-Man in this thing. So, Sean has been so obsessed with Todd McFarlane that it's all I've heard he's all a, week. He's a big inspiration. As I, as I continue to write, he's a big inspiration. And I'll tell you why as we get into it's not it. his voice. <laughs> Todd McFarlane has such a monotone part, part of the inspiration, though, uh, for this is my other podcast... Shaw knobs and and boomsticks, um, where the the topic that we're talking about tomorrow is the Spawn animated series that was on HBO in the late nineties. Yeah. So that kind of you know they influenced each other and and here we are. But also I think this is a really fun and interesting and like I said inspiring. Uh, I don't know if it's really a story. Well, here's my kind of issue. Really you already story. told it. No, I did not. I talked about the creators of Image, which is a lot different. 
that was literally seven different people. It was the creation. It's it's not the same thing. What's wrong? What are you doing? I'm fixing my mic. Oh. You what are you at, doing? You look at it like you were horrified. Well, I was trying to do it with my by moving it the least amount possible so it didn't make noise. All right. So Todd McFarlane is best known as a comic book artist, creator of Spawn, and a, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and, uh, he created uh, toy lines. He uh, he's also known for um, create not well co-creating Venom, but we'll get into all that. So I'll stop summarizing my own topic here. All right, Todd McFarlane was born March sixteenth, nineteen sixty one, in Calgary. Alberta, Canada. Yep. Uh, his parents were Bob and Shirley McFarlane. His dad, uh, Bob, worked in the printing business, which led him to take work where he could find it. And as a result, during McFarlane's childhood, the family lived in 30 different places from Alberta to California. Uh, what? Yeah. The printing business isn't that serious. You don't have to move all over the goddamn. <laughs> <He said, laughs> let him take work, take work where he could find it. I don't know what he did in the printing business. Or was maybe maybe just better opportunities. Was he printing for the circus? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. he was... What? All right, so McFarlane began drawing as a hobby at an early age, developed an interest in comics, uh, probably around the age of 16, actually, is when he got really into comics, he said. He was a fan of creators like John Byrne, Jack Kirby, Frank Miller, and George Perez, as well as the writing of Alan Moore. Alan Moore created The Watchmen. And V for Vendetta. What? What's the I feel like face? any business could be like, I'm going to take work where I can get it. And you just... are far too hung up on his dad's work. Please, please don't do this. <laughs> you get so hung up on these stupid details. And I'm sorry I mentioned them. His dad details... had a job. All right. And they moved a lot. That's it. That's the story. Let's just let it go there. Can you imagine if I moved our family? I don't have any more times. information about, about printing presses in the fucking 70s. Well, imagine if you were just like, we're moving 30 times because I, I, I got to take work where I can get it. In the chemical business. Again, it might have been. Just opportunities like, oh, if I go here, I will make more money or I can go here. And yeah, make but you have to uproot your family. Apparently it was worth it to him. Jesus. I don't know. I don't know the story of Bob McFarlane. This is Todd <laughs> McFarlane. Shut the fuck up about Bob. <laughs> Jesus. Stay focused. <laughs> I didn't take Adderall today. So <laughs> like, good Lord. All right. <sighs> All right. So one day while in uh, 12th grade at Calgary, Sir Winston Churchill High School. Jesus Christ. Who was working as a groundskeeper for the Calgary Cardinals was standing in the bleachers when a 13-year-old ninth grader uh, was sitting near him named Wanda began flirting with him. The two began dating. I'm oh. sorry. <laughs> I knew this was going to be a point of contention. <laughs> there are so many things that we need to talk about. <laughs> We're never going to get I through guess this. this is what well, I always go last. <laughs> you don't always go last. Well, I do now. I try to. First of all. I. I we always, have a lot to. We have to. We have a lot I, to. I always go last, bitch. <laughs> I have to, <laughs> bitch. For the good of our marriage. <laughs> All right, let's let's backtrack here. So he get he moves thirty times from anywhere from Canada to California, right? Yeah. But somehow he ends up back in Calgary, where he started, <laughs> and he's now a groundskeeper. He's fucking groundskeeper Willie at. <laughs> And he starts flirting with a 13-year-old. No, 13-year-old started flirting with him, is what it says. Is what it says. But Get he's it. a groundskeeper. Testimony here. He's, a, he's in 12th grade. He's in 12th grade. He's oh. in high school. Oh, okay. Okay, wait. That's better. He's a he's a senior in high school, That's but he's better. also the groundskeeper at the school. Okay. All right? 
That's weird, though. Most, <laughs> most seniors, like Logan, Logan's going into 12th grade, and at no point is he the groundskeeper. Normally you have an outside employee for that, but okay. So this was, you know, what, 1973 or something? Different times, man. Different times. Yeah, it was... Or, it was no, it would be more than that. It would be like 1977 or so. Somewhere around there. Late gross. 70s. It's fucking gross. Groundskeeper Willie. Groundskeeper Willie. And uh, 13-year-old Wanda starts flirting with him. So, of course, being a senior, he takes advantage <laughs> and flirts back and uh, with uh, objections from her father. Yeah, y- yep. Who thought she was too young for him. Yeah. Uh, eventually, yep. Todd won, won her father over. And they're, they're married and they're still married. So, high school sweethearts. It's a five-year difference. What's our difference in age? Which point? It's it's four and a half years. We are four and a half years apart. It is not as big a deal as you're making it out to be. It would be if I was 13. <laughs> but we could pretend he was 17 at the time. I don't know. He's still, you know, well, seven. if it's five years, that's not five years. Well, I'm, I'm just. Do you not know what five I'm just years? doing you in, in school years. If, uh, I'm assuming. Well, uh, it could be. He was either 17 or 18. So he's either four years or five years difference. I was just assuming five, 18 average high school senior age. High school, you're not 18 until you graduate. Okay, so he's 17 then. We'll just go with four years difference. How about that? Is that better? I don't know. Do you want to learn more about these printing press jobs across the U.S.? You want to get into that? No, I don't have any more of that. No, I was just trying to get you back into the topic here, and I know how much that interests you. All right. So right after high school, McFarlane attended baseball tryouts at Gonzaga University. Gonzaga. Uh, Gonzaga. Is it? Are you sure? What? Am I sure what? How would you say it? I don't know. I don't know what the word is. It's Gonzaga. <laughs> <laughs> That's the word. That's why I said it like that. The word, is, the word is. It's right there. Gonzaga. All right. See? See the word? See? Gonzaga. Oh, that's the word. Yeah. Wait, where is that? Is it uh, one of the places where his dad had a printing press? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was right next door to the printing press plant place. <laughs> 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 All right. So despite being a good fielder and fast, he was not a good hitter. Moreover, he could not afford Gonzaga, so he attended Spokane Falls Community College for a year. Spokane. Uh, his relationship Spokane. with Wanda developing into a long-distance one. In 1981, McFarland began attending Eastern Washington University on a baseball scholarship, studying as part of a self-designed program for graphics and art. Wanda. His practical goal... <laughs> Why did you say that? <laughs> <laughs> Why did you interrupt just to say Wanda? Because I think of a fish called Wanda. <laughs> Look over. Wanda. <laughs> All right. Next week, brought to you by Adderall. All right. All right. Uh, where it was seems I? like a real waste to um, take it for a podcast. All right. His practical goal was to join his father in the printing business in Calgary, Alberta. <laughs> 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 I don't know if that's meant to be funny. It's not. <laughs> oh, I'm just laughing because you're laughing. It's not even funny. Yes, it is. We could... <laughs> Why? Why is it in Calgary? Yeah, I thought the jobs were so hard. You get a lot up. of crisscrossing, 30, all right? I don't know. I don't know. Jobs are so hard to come by. Why would you fucking go into that industry? It's, it's Wikipedia, man. I didn't vet any of this. <laughs> all right. I, I didn't get a chance to talk to Todd. 
this is this is what I got. This is what I got to work with here. Oh my god. This Lost my spot again. This is so funny. All right, but he his dream was always to be a comic book creator. Uh, oh. He worked uh, part time on campus as a janitor in the school's administration building, as his scholarship required an on campus job. Also worked weekends at a comic shops at a comic shop called the Comic Rack, devoting a couple hours late at night to practice his comic art. He sought to play baseball professionally after graduation, suffered a serious ankle injury in his junior year, year during a game uh, with Washington State University. So then he focused on drawing, working at the comic book store to pay for the rest of his education, and living in a trailer park in Cheney, Washington with Wanda, who had moved to the area to be with him and attend uh, that EWU as well. What's EWU? The, the college, Eastern Washington University. Wow. Next to the printing press. <laughs> right. Um, in 1984, a year after his injury, uh, his final chance to play for the big leagues came when he tried out with the Toronto Blue Jays, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays farm team in Medicine Hat, Alberta. But he ended up being ranked last on the roster, ending his professional baseball prospects. Wait, you say Medicine Hat? That's what it says. Medicine Hat, Alberta. Alberta. All right, he graduated with a bachelor's degree that same year and stayed in Spokane while Wanda finished her degree. So while he was still, this is where it gets more interesting for me anyway. Well, so while while he was still in college, he be, he began sending 30 to 40 packages of submissions each month to comics editors at DC and Marvel, totaling over 700 submissions over a year and a half, most of which were in the form of uh, pinups that he had drawn. Half of them resulted in no response, while the other half resulted in rejection letters. Though he did receive some constructive citizen, or citizens? Constructive criticism uh, uh, from a few editors. One of them was DC Comics' Sal Amendola. Uh, he gave uh, McFarlane a dummy script in order to gauge McFarlane's page-to-page -page storytelling ability. Amendola's advice that McFarlane's submissions needed to focus page-to-page -page stories rather than pinups led McFarlane to create a five-page coyote sample. Coyote was apparently a comic book at the time. Don't know that character, or if it was about a coyote. It was about Wild E. Coyote? Maybe. Uh, so he uh, created a five-page coyote sample that he initially sent to the X-Men editor Ann Nocenti at Marvel. She passed it along to Archie Goodwin and Joe Duffy, the editors of the uh, Marvel imprint Epic Comics, which published Coyote. They in turn passed it on to Coyote creator Steve Englehart, who called McFarlane to offer McFarlane his first comic job, a 1984 backup story in Coyote. Sometimes comics have backup stories where it's literally just like a three or four page story. And, you know, it's just like, like a short story that has nothing to do with the continuity of what's going on in the comics. It's just like just a little extra feature sometimes. And they still do that. It was more common back then, but sometimes they'll, they'll do it nowadays, too. I don't know what you're talking so, and one of the things that in one of the interviews with McFarlane that he said is that after he got hired at Marvel doing this Coyote backup story, he was still receiving rejection letters from Marvel <laughs> because of all the submissions he had. Because, you know, you don't just get hired at Marvel. You get hired to do, you're not paying any attention to me right That's now. That's because we just got Aaron now Rob asked to join our group. And I'm telling him no, because you know <laughs> what? You didn't answer any of the questions. We've gotten a lot of of people who are clearly not native English speakers who want to join our group that don't, that can't answer the, the very simple question of who are S&M. I don't know why they want to join our group. If they're real people, even who knows. They want to spam us. Yeah. 
spammers. No thanks. Anyway. All right. Uh, so yeah, while while he was working at Marvel, he was still getting rejection letters from Marvel. Uh, uh, all right, so he began drawing uh, for both DC and Marvel. His first major body of work being a two-year run on DC's Infinity Incorporated. Don't know what the fuck that is. That was 85 to 87. In 1987, McFarlane illustrated the, the last three issues of the Detective Comics four-issue Batman Year Two storyline. Uh, and from there, he moved to Marvel's Incredible Hulk, which he drew from 1987 to 1988, working with the uh, acclaimed Hulk writer Peter David, who I'm, I'm not a big fan of. So are you a contractor? When you do comics, uh, they've they've done it a lot of different ways. So back then, yeah, but they uh, with image comics. Well, that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking about that because he drew for. Detective yeah, back comics then it was it was for... contracted, but eventually they started locking down people, artists and stuff ex for exclusive contracts because they didn't want them going back and forth. <laughs> because and, that's what he was doing. That's right. what I'm asking. Yeah. Or, and I think Image inspired that, too, is they didn't want people going to Image, too. Uh, he drew one of my favorite, one of, an iconic Incredible Hulk cover that I'll describe that you probably won't remember. But it's uh, it's Wolverine mm -hmm. is, is the, the fo focus of it. And he has his, his blades out, his three three blades in one of his hands are out. And in the, re in the shiny reflection of the blade, you can see the Hulk. It's a pretty iconic comic book cover. Sounds great. <laughs> Anyway, I'm sorry I'm not talking about printing presses from California to Canada <laughs> because that would clearly hold your interest a lot better. All right. So in 1988, McFarlane joined writer David Michelini, Michelini, I don't know how to say his name, on Marvel's The Amazing Spider-Man, beginning with issue number 298. Yep. So he, he got on that book and at the time Spider-Man was had his all black suit which he got during the secret wars and they you hadn't quite it had only been re recently revealed that the suit was like a living organism like for a long time he didn't know what it, he saw it was like a programmable suit some sort of super futuristic thing he didn't know what it was and then reed richards discovered that it was actually a symbiotic organism and that's when he rejected it or whatever and todd came on there and the first thing he wanted to do was draw spider-man in his red and blue suit so the first thing he did was try to make that happen and so in issue 300 just you know two issues later That's he introduces he venom. venom yeah that makes sense um and then it, well i've hung out with you too much we're done <laughs> why podcast over <laughs> why because i saw where that went and i it's very upsetting to me that's not <laughs> <laughs> that you knew, knew what that venom yeah. came around in amazing spider-man 300 and i was like and that makes sense because then it goes to him and then all right, so McFarlane garnered notice for the more dynamic poses in which he depicted Spider-Man's aerial web swinging, his enlarging of the eyes on the character's mask, and greater detail in which he rendered his artwork, in particular with the, the webbing, which came to be called spaghetti webbing. He had a lot of detail when he would shoot out webs. So up until that point, and I went back and I went through Marvel Unlimited and started looking, from, from 1962 until about 1988, no matter what artist was drawing Spider-Man, it basically looked the same. So you had you had Steve Ditko design Spider-Man. Sometimes Jack Kirby would work on it, but it was it was almost indistinguishable from each other. John Romita was on there in the 70s. John, John Romita and Ross Andrew uh, were artists. Again, their work, for me anyway, very hard to tell apart. 
Like it was one of those things where it, um, there was like a way to draw Spider-Man and th this is how you drew it, right? Todd McFarlane comes in and he decided that he didn't want to draw, you know, he he basically, he, he didn't say that he was drawing it better. Like that was his whole thing is like the, the Marvel editors were like, well, you know, you're saying you're a better artist than John Romain. He's like, no, I just want to do it differently. I just want to, you know, I just think this looks cool. That's all. I would never compare myself to John Romita. And so you went from the, the standard. Don't show me pictures. Yeah, I'm going to show you pictures. The oh. standard Spider-Man style to to this. where, And again, you had, the, you had the typical six to nine, typically about six boxes uh, layout on a comic book page, you know, sometimes nine if they were smaller boxes. But you'd have like six boxes, right? And you never broke those frames. Todd McFarlane came in doing stuff like this. Yes, I know. And they, <laughs> you don't know this page. You don't know this. But I do. And I'll publish because this on our Instagram I so you can see it. I just watched the same thing you You didn't see this stuff. Where he talked about how he wasn't a very good artist. So what he did is he used his graphic design knowledge to distract people by that by changing the layout. Tell everybody what you know about Todd I McFarlane. Know. You go, girl. You go, Glenn Coco. <laughs> Proud of you. That's what I mean when I say oh, we spend too much time together. But look, look how cool that is, though. Like, that's so different. Like, you're used to it nowadays. And again, I'll, I'll put these pictures up on Instagram uh, so you can see how comic... Tom McFarlane had a huge, huge impact on comics. Uh, not because, Again, he, he kind of... He didn't redesign Spider-Man. He just exaggerated some things, again, with the poses uh, and the, the size of the eyes and the amount of detail in his work. Uh, including, you know, like, look at all the lines on that guy's face and stuff. And just the stylization, like the, how cartoony his look what was. What I like about... And look at the webbing. Todd McFarlane in general. Yeah. Having nothing to do with his art style. Is that he doesn't think it's anything special. Yeah. He just doesn't understand why nobody else is doing it. Right. Or nobody else had a different approach. And, and he was right at the time, though. Like, it, in 1988... And I wasn't into comic books yet, so this is all knowledge that I've, I've, you know, gotten since then. But you know, when when you go back and look at comics, I I remember I had a Green Lantern comic that I got from like a kid at school or a neighbor or something, and I used to just read that over and over and over again because it was like the only comic book I had as a little kid. But all comics essentially looked the same; like they had a very static look for the characters, like. I remember Batman from the 70s to the 80s basically looked the same. When Todd McFarlane came in and started changing up Spider-Man and then started, Spider-Man's sales started going up, that's when Marvel really took notice is they're like, okay, they didn't like what he was doing, but they were making money. Right. And so that all of a sudden, and that that's bled over to nowadays where you, you have an artist like Humberto Ramos. He does, when he does Spider-Man, I can immediately be like, oh, that's Ramos as Spider-Man. Or when Ryan Otley yeah, draws Spider-Man. That's what I'm or, always like. I'm or J. Scott like, Campbell. Like, they all have their own distinct styles. I'm it didn't used like, to be that Humberto way. Humberto Ramos. <laughs> anyway, as a comic book fan, you can tell, you know, a Sam Keith. You know, oh, that's Sam Keith's Batman versus Kelly Jones's Batman or, or Frank Miller's Batman. It, they all, all of a sudden, were able to really bring in their own style, which was really cool. That's important, in my opinion. It's very important. And now... now the 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 publishers embrace it. They didn't embrace it back then at all. They they were very resistant to change. All right, I lost my spot now. Um, all because you all right. stopped talking about. All right, Spider -Man. so he gave a lot of detail to Spider Man's webbing. 
Uh, it essentially had been rendered as a series of X's between two lines before. McFarlane embellished it by uh, detailing far more individual strands, which again b became to be called uh, spaghetti webbing. So he was the first person to draw the first full appearance of Eddie Brock, the I, first incarnation I can't of Venom. Drawing that webbing, that would make me insane. The the amount of detail in it, yeah. Yeah, because like I draw flowers a lot, like that's my thing. Yeah. And like when I draw the stem of a flower, I get so bored. <laughs> drawing drawing the webbing would be like, all right, well, I guess I'll just. I guess I'll just fling myself off a building now. <laughs> All right, so he's been credited as being the co-creator of Venom, and this has been disputed by that David Michelini guy, the writer. The reason I'm, I kind of disparage David Michelini is because I, I read all his Venom and Spider-Man stories, and they're just not very good. So I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know. if He, <laughs> he may have had more to, create, more to do with creating Venom than, than Todd McFarlane did, but I will say this. If somebody else had designed Venom's face, it, it probably wouldn't have been as big a deal. But Todd McFarlane brought his style to that, you know, and it probably wouldn't have been nearly as cool. And I can tell, Todd, aside from him just drawing it, Todd McFarlane's love of like horror and darker themes and everything. I guarantee that made Venom look, you know, with the teeth and the tongue and everything. He probably wouldn't have looked as mean and vicious as he did if it weren't for Todd McFarlane. That's not a fact. That's just my opinion. So a little sidebar here, writer David Michelini and artist Tom McFarlane are gen generally credited with the uh, creation of Venom based on a number of plot ideas and concepts from various other creators. The question of who created the character Venom became an issue of contention in 1993 when Michelini wrote to the comic book industry magazine Wizard, which had referred to Michelini in issue 17 as co-creator of Venom. In his letter, printed in May 1993, uh, Michelini wrote that he was the character's sole creator while saying... Also, he believed that without McFarlane, the character would not have attained the popularity it did. But to say he's the sole creator is just kind of weird because the Venom's identity is very visual. And the reason anybody you talk to any Venom fan, like when I was talking to John, anybody who was reading Venom in the 90s, those books are fucking awful, including the ones written by David. Mike, And they were awful at the time. We bought those books because we liked to see Venom do cool shit. We liked the look of the character. So I feel like for a character like that, you have to give more of the credit to to Todd McFarlane. And Todd McFarlane had some backup from uh, another creator named Eric Larson, who created the Savage Dragon. I know who Eric Larson is. Thanks. <laughs> you do? He's bald. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he dismissed Michelini's contributions to the character, arguing that Michelini merely swiped the pre-existing symbiote because the costume had been around for a few years at that point since issue number 252. Um, and... Uh, he, he swiped the uh, symbiote and its powers to place it on a character whose motivations were poorly conceived, one-dimensional, unbelievable, and cliched, which is true. Eddie, Bach, Eddie Brock's origin is ridiculous and stupid. It's terrible. Uh, he also argued that it was McFarlane's rendition of the character that made it commercial, and I, I agree 100% with that. It wasn't the writing. Nobody, nobody gave a shit. No, there are no classic Venom stories. Like there are Batman stories. You go, oh, yeah, Dark Knight Returns and The Long Halloween and Arkham Asylum, The Killing Joke. Venom, you're like, well, I read Lethal Protector, but I don't recommend you read it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, there just, there aren't. There just I don't aren't. I recommend you read it. 
But the, the current run is really good. Uh, Donnie Cates is writing it, and it's actually it's the first time Venom is... Not, I guess not the first time. I guess Rick Remender did a run that was good, but I haven't read it, so I can't vouch for that. Partially because it's not Eddie Brock. It's uh, Flash Thompson is Venom, so I don't really want to read it. To me, Venom is Eddie Brock and the symbiote. I don't like it when they switch things up. You know how I am about that. I don't like it. I don't care who. Just keep it Keep it to the original. It's fantasy. You don't like Lady Thor? <laughs> not big on Lady Thor. She can be the god of thunder. She can't be Thor. Right. She can literally have the same skill set. We've talked armor. Dude, we've talked about this. Yeah, but I don't think I I made it clear that I don't care if she has the same powers and designation. You you made it clear. She can be literally, but you can't take the name. The name doesn't like you can't be Tony Stark. You you can be Iron Man, but you can't be Tony Stark. No, we got it. Okay. I I I just I understand. It's stupid. It's dumb. It's literally identity. It's false theft. advertising. Yeah. It's identity theft. Well, yeah, but then it's false ad- like again, you, you go to the comic book store for the first time cuz you thought saw a Thor movie, you're like, "Oh, I'm going to check out Thor," and then you're flipping through it and you're just like, "But where is Thor? Who is this lady?" <laughs> like, I don't get it. This, I thought I was reading a Thor comic book. It's fucking week. false advertising. Hush. I don't remember anything I say. We didn't ever, talk about So hush. I tend to repeat myself because I'm old and dumb. All right? So let it go. Thank you. Yeah, you can just look incredulous all you want. All right. All right, so his work on Amazing Spider-Man made him an industry superstar. His cover art for Amazing Spider-Man number 313, which he got paid $700 for in 1989, later sold for $71,000 in 2010. Oh. Yeah. Uh, That's a lot. So despite this, he became increasingly dissatisfied with the lack of control over his own work. And he, want, he wanted more say in the direction of storylines. began to miss deadlines, requiring, requiring guest artists to fill in for him on some issues. So in 1990, after a 28-issue run, which is a little over two years on Amazing Spider-Man, uh, McFarlane told editor Jim Salakrup that he wanted to write his own stories and would be leaving the book with issue number 328, which was part of that year's company-wide Acts of Vengeance crossover storyline. I don't know what that means. In July 2012, the original artwork to that issue's cover which features Spider-Man taking on the Hulk, sold for a record-breaking $657,000, the highest auction price ever for any piece of American comic book art. Uh, Eric Larson then took over for McFarland on Amazing Spider-Man, and they gave him, to to appease him because he wanted to write, they started a whole new line of Spider-Man comics with without any kind of adjective just called Spider-Man. So, Spider-Man number one debuted in August of 1990. You may recognize that cover. You've seen that image on t-shirts and posters and everything. That's Todd McFarlane art. Spectacular, spectacular Spider-Man. Um, and it sold two and a half million copies. And, is that uh, a lot? Is that that a is a fuck ton of copies. <laughs> that is a, yeah. At the, time, at the time, it was the highest selling comic of all time. The highest selling comic of all time actually came out a few years later. Uh, because he kind of started the comic book boom of the 90s, and I think it, the highest comic book of all time sold like 8 million copies, which was X-Men number one. Yeah. It was fucking insane in the early... <laughs> your face. That's so many. Yeah. That's that's how big comic books were in the early so 90s, does everybody man. just have one? Do people just come with them now? <laughs> does everyone just have one? <laughs> <laughs> it's like that like you... We- the U2 album? It was like they would go pick briefly. up a copy of Nevermind and X-Men number one. Well, you know right. what I mean? It was like, it's just a thing back then. Right. Everyone copy of had... Metallica's Black album, one copy of X-Men, I'll be on my way. Right. I'll just take Pearl Jam 10. Right. And. 
what? a copy of uh, that Whitney Houston song. <laughs> and, uh... Yeah, that song? one. That's the one. I didn't know that was a cover song for a very long time. Oh. I, I found that out right now. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. You didn't know that was a Dolly Parton song? Oh, I did know that. Oh, I was going to say, you should, I can't believe you didn't know that. I did know that. I yeah. forgot until just now. Yeah. The old DP wrote, you know, that was her song. <laughs> Don't call her that. <laughs> Jesus. Those are her initials. Yeah. Oh. No, I got it. <laughs> I don't know why that's upsetting. I have no idea. Yeah, I bet. All right. So they did uh, They did do some mul multiple covers on it, which helped spur sales. And there was a lot of backlash at the time, but it's just funny. It's one of those things like, like nowadays you have people in video games especially they're upset about microtransactions like but the reason they're doing them is because somebody's fucking buying them so you can talk about it all you want on the internet but as long as the companies are making money on the shit your your black backlash means nothing right like well on the internet everybody talks about everything and has backlash but the backlash means literally zero things yeah because internet backlash isn't real backlash right like the amount of money they're making on the comics are, are what matters so all right, so uh, this practice was both a result of and fueled the comic spectator bubble of the 1990s, which would burst later that decade. McFarlane, unbeknownst to his parents at the time, was making about a million dollars a year doing the comic books. Yeah, <laughs> your face. So meanwhile, his dad is just traveling all over the goddamn world trying, <laughs> to, moved trying to find a goddamn printing press to, to work on. And McFarlane's like, no, this makes a million dollars. And Bob McFarlane's like, anyone have a printing press for me to print? Are we printing anything? Like, I just want to typeset some blocks, please. And, and Todd's like, fuck you, Bob. I got another million dollars. Is that what I'm to understand? Yeah, we'll go with that. I don't have anything to back that up, but sure, that sounds fun. That's what's happening in my head. Like, that's what I picture happening. All right, McFarlane. When you say unbeknownst to his parents, <laughs> I picture Sad. fucking... Just crisscrossing the U.S. Bob is like, it's like come the on, map. what's her name? What it's was her name? Cheryl? Sherry or something. Sherry? I don't know. But I just picture the map, like, from Indiana Jones. Or yeah. <laughs> that's him in, like, his RV or whatever. But I picture him, like, whatever a printing press looks like. It's like Bob just pushing it. <laughs> like, He's going door to door with a giant fucking pretty press. Do you have anything? You want you mean to do your Christmas cards this year? The custom Christmas cards. Oh, I can Bob do it with the foil insides, and we'll do it with the nice prints. And these dogs know right when an hour hits, yeah. don't they? they like we hit an hour, and they, like, he just took the, he just took the foam cover, the, <laughs> the windscreen off my goddamn mic. All right, so despite his acclaim as an artist, fans found McFarlane's writing to be clumsy, unsophisticated, and pretentious. Oh, he was the writer and the artist on Spider-Man. I don't know if I made that clear or not. So I don't know if you've made it clear, but Todd McFarlane's voice. Oh, don't rag on the man's voice. Listen, no, listen. It's so unique that I don't like Rob Liefeld at all. But one of the things that you watched this week was Rob Liefeld was in it because of Image Comics. Yeah. Rob Liefeld does a spot on impression of him. Like, it's yeah. so unique that you can do impressions of him. Yeah. Because it's so it's so bizarre and monotone and like he doesn't open his mouth all the way when he talks. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, yeah, he, he he's never been a great writer, but he always wanted to write. And I think it's cool that. He, he wanted to scratch that itch. And he also knows he's not a great writer. And he doesn't care. 
He's yeah, just like, he this is what I like to do. He know that about everything he does, though. Yeah, he knows, like, he calls himself a below average to average artist, which I would say is pretty humble because he, he may not be a perfect artist, but he's an amazing artist, though. And he, he definitely has a style that is recognizable, which I think is more important than being the best artist. Well, he said the thing you were watching a little bit ago, he said that when he was reading comic books, he would see people with like wonky eyes and bad anatomy and he'd be like well i could draw wonky eyes and bad anatomy <laughs> he's like so i want to send my submissions well, that's the thing that's the thing with me writing is when i, I started yeah, writing what because motivates you because aquaman it's like aquaman is is literally one of the worst pieces of shit i've ever seen on the big well i didn't see it on the big screen but that's that has made it to the big screen and been a huge success yeah and i'm like i can i know i can do better than that without trying very hard too right and uh, so far, I'm right. <laughs> Come here. All right. Back back to the story. Don't play with the dog. Do Sorry. The dog he's making eye contact with me, and well, he's just, so cute. You just break it. It's fine. I can't break eye contact. All right. With so the dog. at the time he was writing the Spider-Man, uh, editorial had problems with the dark tone of the stories he was telling, beginning with the inaugural Torment storyline, which depicted a more vicious version of the uh, villain, the Lizard. Now, this is where I got introduced to Todd McFarlane and Spider-Man. So I was a chap. Yes. A chap, for those of you. It's a male candy striper. A male candy striper, a volunteer at the local children's hospital. Stairs to the gift shop (laughs) and read comic books. So, but this was one of the this was one of the the comics that was down there was, and I don't. It wasn't the first issue. I think it was like issue like four or five. But I was I picked up Spider Man because of course I like Spider Man, and. I was immediately blown away by the artwork, though, and I didn't really take notice of the name at the time, but and how dark it was at that time. Be up until that point, comic book pages were white, right? Like when you read a comic book, they were white with color printed on them. Most of these pages were black with color. So it obviously tonally makes a big difference. You know, Hellboy did that a lot of that, too, with the black pages and the and the artwork and stuff years later. I don't know how that works. Is the actual page black? Uh, or is it just so so saturated um i i assume it's black paper i don't i don't know but no i guess it'd be ink it would have to be ink you can't print color on a black page so that doesn't make any sense anyway that's neither here nor there you should really contact bob mcfarland and talk (laughs) to him about this printing situation but the the point is at the time as like a 12 year old kid or whatever i was it was very dark and i remember thinking that i'm like man this this is there's there was blood i wasn't used to seeing blood in comic books um, no, you were at the hospital. You weren't seeing blood. No, I just meant it wasn't like horrifying. It was just different. It was I'd never seen that before. Maybe if you showed up for your chap fucking service instead of reading <laughs> I did, comic but books. then when they have anything for me to do, I'd go down to the, the gift shop and read comic books and, and Stephen King's Misery. <laughs> those, those are, yeah, <laughs> that, that's what I was doing at 12. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, he had his own tone, which obviously would come about. He would, you know, bring that to his later creation uh, spawn. But yeah, I guess we're going to make this a two parter because I have a lot more to go. And uh, I I feel like it's going to take a long time. So we'll, we'll stop there with Todd McFarland's run on Spider-Man from 1990 to 1991. Okay. So do you have anything else you want to add? Sorry for the uh, abrupt ending there, but but that's our time. And see, (laughs) that's our time. See, Plus, we, we got to do a Patreon, too, and get these dogs outside. We got Patreon, all, and we got to make a video. 
Got to make some video content. We're recording video tomorrow. Oh, OK. Yeah. And well, they don't need to know that. Well, now, you know, <laughs> when you are listening to this, assuming you listen to this Monday or later, the video will already be recorded. Right. But, yeah. Right. So uh, come back next week for Todd McFarlane part two. And you can hear about the huge success story that, that Todd McFarlane is and what an inspiration he is. Or more of that, anyway. Oh, man. Are you going to watch more Todd McFarlane shit throughout the week? All week. Just hype you up? All week. going to put it all right I now. I feel like I know someone. Oh, good. <laughs> Research Bob McFarlane. Research Todd McFarlane on his dad throughout this week. Hopefully uh, next week when we come back, we'll know more about Bob McFarlane. All right. Well, that's everything. Thanks for listening. Bye.